What's up? Welcome back to the Microfamous Podcast. I sent out an email uh, a little while ago asking for some really tough questions for the podcast, and I got some really great questions back. I, I was shocked, really, by the depth of some of them. And so I wanted to answer one that was really good, that really caught my eye on today's show. And it, it takes us uh, kind of piggybacks off of the conversation on puffery and hype that I talked about with Frank Klesitz. So if you haven't uh, dived deep on that episode yet, that was amazing. One of the best conversations uh, I've ever done on a podcast in, I think, six years of podcasting or something like that. Like it's, yeah, it's it's life changing. But uh, this one kind of piggybacks on that, but goes deeper onto a specific aspect of puffery and hype, which is this, what do we call ourselves? And the question comes from Jim, who's on the email list. He said, how can I be recognized and paid as an expert without calling myself an expert or a guru or genius or other nonsense, which I, I loved that at the end, just calling, calling that <laughs> other nonsense, because he's right, it is nonsense. Um, and I wanna give some practical examples where it's easy to stray into puffery and hype without even realizing it, because we see so much of this every day in the coaching consulting world. In fact, I would say we're, we're bombarded with it. Uh, a lot of it uh, comes from the kind of bro marketing world, uh, but not all of it. You know, some people look at um, some people who, who aren't inclined that way kind of fall into the trap of getting into puffery just because they see so many other people doing it. It feels normal. It feels like something that we should do. Uh, and there were some other questions related to marketing language that I want to get into on a future episode uh, that kind of alluded to that same thing. Like, hey, I see this going on all around me. Is that what I should be doing? You know, how do I be authentically me? Uh, and but this in this episode, I just want to zero in on what do we call ourselves? How do we label ourselves and what we do without getting into puffery and hype? So I want to start with uh, with a good rule of thumb, and I'll, I'll give kind of some good rules of thumb throughout. But this was really the first one that stuck out to me. This came from Frank, who I interviewed on the on the last episode of the show, uh, so you can check that out. But here's the rule of thumb: make zero claims the reader could disagree with. And we're talking about, I'm just going to use the, the, the term uh, reader. You know, it could be someone who's watching your videos or listening to your podcast. I, I don't care. Uh, but this is kind of, it comes from the world of copywriting. So I'm just going to kind of phrase it that way. Uh, because it's really about like when somebody picks up, uh, let's say a direct mail, you know, letter from you, or if they're scrolling through Facebook and they see one of your posts, so they more, more realistically, let's say they go to the homepage of your website. Are there any claims there that you've made where the reader could potentially disagree with? And you wanna make zero claims of that nature. So what that means is that you have to drop any adjectives or other types of language that doesn't keep the reader shaking their head yes as they read your stuff, right? As they scroll through your website, they should be nodding their head yes. Anything that makes them go, mm, I don't know about that, needs to be examined and potentially removed. Now, Seth Godin pointed out that the web is incredibly distrustful he was talking about why, you know, it's it's hard to make ads profitable, you know, online ads, paid traffic. He said the web is just so incredibly distrustful. It's so distrustful, in fact, that it's hard to make the ads even pay for themselves because it takes so much advertising to produce a sale. You typically end up spending more on the ads than you get back in the sale. And this is true of a lot of people. And it's because the web is so distrustful. They don't know who to believe. They don't know what to believe. So when we show up and claim that we're more of an expert or more of a guru or whatever than others, we're actually not helping as much as we might think. We're not really setting ourselves apart. What we're actually doing is creating resistance because we're saying something that the reader can't verify and that raises suspicion, right? You know, it kind of creates that like, why are you having to talk yourself up? 
Uh, so I'm going to give some examples because this can be hard to grasp or recognize. But I think once you see this kind of puffer, you'll see it everywhere. So if you uh, take a peek over at John Maxwell's website, and if you don't know John Maxwell, he is kind of the leadership guy. Uh, he is the, the I would say, probably the number one person on any list. If you're an event organizer in the corporate world, especially, and you want somebody to come in and speak on leadership, it's basically John Maxwell and everyone else. Uh, when my, uh, yeah, I only went to like one year of high school because I was homeschooled most of the time, but I did go to one small private school for my junior year. And one of our classes was leadership class. And guess what the textbook was? A John Maxwell book, right? That's how well known. I mean, he is one of the shining examples of, of what I would call micro famous, where you're known for one thing. He is known for leadership. Now, when you look at his website, though, here's the way the copywriting goes. He is the, and here, I'm going to quote here, number one New York Times bestselling author and world-renowned leadership expert, end quote. Now, that sounds fine at first, but I want you to look closer. So there's three, there's three elements in that statement. Only one of those elements is actually a verifiable fact. The other two elements are opinions at best, and one is just what I would call flat-out puffery, right? What does world-renowned even mean? Whose opinion is that? Uh, then we get to leadership expert, quote unquote expert. Now, if you know John Maxwell, you've read his books on leadership, you'd agree he's a leadership expert. I certainly do. But if you hadn't heard of him and you were reading this for the first time, would you nod your head along and go, oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, of course not. You don't have any idea who he is, right? So you don't, you don't agree that he's a leadership expert until you've experienced his content, right? Until you've experienced uh, the expertise. You don't agree that he's an expert. Now, we do this in our marketing all the time, especially in the things that people see when they come across us for the first time, and we're actually just creating resistance. Now, what would I put on his website if I were in charge of his marketing? I would put something like, number one New York Times bestselling author and international speaker on the subject of leadership. Fact, fact, fact. Number one New York Times bestselling author, fact. International speaker, fact. Verified by, you know, uh, all of this. You can really put, you know, a list of his events on the site and very easily prove that. And third, he's a bestselling author and speaker on the subject of leadership. Again, fact. You know, you could literally put a screenshot of all of his books and 90% of them have the word leadership or leader in the title. So all of those things are not hype. They're not puffery. They're not exaggeration of any kind. And there's no, there's no feeling of him trying to sell you if he just said, I'm the number one New York Times bestselling author and international speaker on the subject of leadership. Though fact, 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 right? Now, you could also say something like America's leadership expert. However, my, my belief is that you'd have to have some other forms of proof nearby. Unless you resigned yourself to the fact that you're only talking to people who already know who you are, you'd have to put some proof nearby. Right. I mentioned some things that you could put like screenshots of the events he's spoken at or a list of all of his books with all their titles. And, you know, that kind of proves uh, that he's all about leadership. Like there'd be easy ways to prove that you could also prove it with uh, pictures of him on stage speaking with, you know, other highly regarded, well-known people. Yada, yada. There's a bunch of stuff that you could do. We can get into that uh, some other time. But you could potentially say something like America's leadership export or the number one leadership expert in the world, but you'd have to have lots and lots and lots of proof nearby unless you knew that you were already talking to people who know who you are. So I want to give an example from the way that I position myself and the language that I use. Um, 
So when the Microfamous book came out, we did the whole bestseller strategy thing. It hit number one, new release, uh, hit it number one in a couple of categories. Uh, all fine. Uh, I mean, I, I firmly believe that just about anyone with a good launch plan and some good research in Amazon categories can do the same thing. I don't think it was all that special of what I did. So I don't call myself a bestselling author. Lots and lots and lots of people take that and run with it. So, but what does bestselling even mean? Bestselling according to who? Right, it's become really abused in our space. So I don't use any of that language. Uh, I call myself an author, period. I have a book on Amazon. You can literally see a picture of the book on the front page of my website. It's not something the reader can disagree with. It's literally, I'm an author, I wrote a book, here it is. They're like, okay, great. Now, if you hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list, feel free to let us know. That's a verifiable fact, which leads us to another rule of thumb. Rule of thumb number two. If you make a claim the reader could disagree with, let someone else say it. When the New York Times says you're a bestseller, people go, wow, that's impressive. Why is that? Well, it's a credible third party saying that you're a best-selling author, not an unverifiable claim coming from you. Uh, another example of this is with the expert or ninja or guru, all those other words. The best way to lay claim to a title like that is to let someone else say it. Grab a testimonial where someone calls you a master of your craft, an expert of what you do, or a guru or a ninja or whatever, and you use that in your marketing. You don't say it. You let somebody else say it. Um, I'll give you another example from my own stuff. I call myself a podcaster, not a podcast expert. Well, why? Well, because even though I can certainly lay claim to the word expert, it creates the potential for disagreement and resistance. Uh, but calling me a podcaster is a fact. I've hosted and launched podcasts for five years. You can see my podcast on my website, uh, on the homepage, right? It's, it's just a fact. It's a factual statement. I am a podcaster. Whether I'm a podcast expert is for others to say. I'm not an expert unless others agree that I have authoritative knowledge or mastery in that area. Just because I believe it's so doesn't mean it is. And it certainly doesn't mean that when I say I'm an expert, that everybody else that hears that for the first time just nods along and goes, oh yeah, absolutely. Well, of course they don't. They'll know me. So it creates resistance. Which leads us to our next rule of thumb on puffery and labels, which is it's better to show than tell. And this is really where we get to answer Jim's question about get, how do you get paid as an expert without having to call yourself or, or label yourself as an expert. And to me, the best way to do that is to show that you have mastery and expertise by sharing it publicly. One of my favorite examples is Bruce Henderson from Boston Consulting, you know, sitting down and writing out these essays, which he called perspectives, and then sending them out through direct mail to the CEOs of companies that he wanted to work with. It was basically the equivalent of a blog today, but it was in written form in, in the late 60s into the 70s. And it's where, it's where he shared concepts like the growth share matrix, which put Boston Consulting on the map. Now, if you share real expertise, unique ideas, compelling content, and you get it into the hands of the right people, it will spread. The problem for most so-called experts is that their ideas aren't that clear and compelling, or, or at least their messaging doesn't communicate their ideas in a clear and compelling way. Now, we'll deal with that. That's a whole other episode that I want to get to in terms of refining your messaging. But if you feel like it's not standing out, you know, take heart. There may be something really compelling in your content in your intellectual property, in the things that you do for clients, and it's just not being communicated in a way that makes it razor sharp, clear, and compelling to the audience. So it could be there, and it's just not communicated correctly in your messaging. But back to, back to the labels that we use. If you want to get paid as an expert, the first step is to actually be one, and then you have to share that expertise to the point where other people agree that you are an expert. And at that point, it's kind of irrelevant what you call yourself. You don't need the puffery anymore, which is what's funny is if you just go out there and be an expert, 
if you share your expertise and you share your mastery and you give some of it away, people are going to go, oh man, this person knows what they're talking about. And you're, you keep growing, you become known for something, you become known for your expertise. All of a sudden you get to the point where you look around and you're like, oh, wait a minute, I don't even need to call myself anything because it's irrelevant now anyway. I don't need, I don't need the puffery, right? John Maxwell doesn't need to tell me he's world renowned. Right. They could have just showed it with screenshots of the books or the testimonials of the lives that he's changed or all the events that he's spoken at. Or there's a million different ways he could have showed me that other people around the world look to him as a leadership expert. I look to him as a leadership expert. I don't need him to tell me he's world renowned. So coming back to Bruce Henderson's essays, these things called perspectives that he sent out. It brings up another good rule of thumb that I picked up from folks like Frank, uh, who I had on the show last week, which is this. Make your free content so good it's worth paying for. And that has always, always stuck with me. I strive to make this podcast uh, and, and the articles that, that go along with it. And I strive to make you know the book, even if you get the digital copy of the book for free on my website, whatever. I try to make that content, the free content I put out there, so good it would actually be worth it if, if I charged for it. Right. So and I treat it like that. I treat it with the same care that I would give if people were paying me, you know, 47 bucks a month for a newsletter or something like that. So Bruce Henderson would send out these essays to CEOs for free. And man, they'd have ideas in those essays that could change their entire company. You know, the growth share matrix was incredible. Um, he could have easily locked that stuff behind the paywall and only given it to CEOs they consulted with. But instead, he gave it away for free, and it actually created demand for the consulting company to come in and implement. And all that while, while he was giving away this free content, it was getting reprinted, it was getting picked up by publications, he was getting interviewed about it, yada, yada. And then BCG's reputation as an intellectual field in the strategy was established that way. So so if your free content doesn't blow people away with value, I, it really doesn't matter what labels you give yourself. People aren't going to agree with the labels and you'll just create resistance and distrust. Now, let's talk about a few ways to separate yourself that aren't puffery and hype. First or only. So first or only. This concept comes from work like Al Reese and Jack Trout on positioning. Uh, people do want to know what the number one brand is in a niche that they care about. You know, if they're about to buy a car, uh, they they kind of want to know that the Toyota Corolla is the number one selling family sedan in in America. That's not puffery. That's not hype. That's a fact based on sales uh, statistics. And essentially, what they're saying is, other people think we're awesome. If you come out and say, "Hey, I am Toyota, and the Toyota Corolla is the best selling family sedan in America," that's not that's not Toyota saying they're awesome. That's Toyota aggregating the opinions of all of America based on where they actually put their hard earned money, and they're just repeating that fact to you. So, to me, that's still good marketing. That's not hyper puffery. That is a factual statement that can be verified with stats. Now, if you want people to believe it. Uh, you may have to provide those stats next to that statement or somewhere very close to it so that people don't think you're using puffery. Um, you know, if you're in a market where it's very common for people to use puffery, that, that may not work for you because if everyone else is using puffery and also claiming to be number one, and you just come out and claim that you're number one, uh, you may just get ignored, right? But if there's not, like if you're competing against people who are honest and they're not making outrageous claims, then if you come out and say you're the number one in the space and you actually are, that's going to get people's attention as long as it's a niche that they care about. So you want to make sure that you have the stats to back it up. And most people would nod their head yes when they hear that claim, right? If I say Ford F-150 is the number one truck in America, I guarantee you even Chevy owners will go, yeah, no, that's, that's true. Uh, I choose to buy Chevy because it's not Ford, right? But nobody's going, oh, I don't 
don't know about that. You know, that Jeep truck is pretty cool. I wonder if that's the number one. Like nobody's nobody's saying that. Um, so the only time you can really get away with saying you're the first is when it's undisputable or when you absolutely put the proof right next to it. Now, what, how does that apply to us down in the world of coaches and consultants? Well, if you claim a niche that you own, you can rightly and accurately claim to be the first or the only in that niche. But it has to be a niche that people care about, and it has to be supplemented with proof or be so obvious that it doesn't create disagreement and resistance. Right? If you claim to be America's number one personal transformation guru, there's going to be a lot of people that read that and go, uh, what about Tony Robbins? <laughs> and they'd be right. Uh, if you claim to be the number one leadership expert in the world, people are going to go, well, what about John Maxwell? Right. So that does, you no good. It just creates resistance. Uh, but if you claim a niche that people care about and it's very specific and there's no other guru or expert or brand in that space, you could rightly claim that space as your own and create little to no resistance. So it's a really powerful thing to be able to claim that you're the first in a space, the number one or the only thing in a space, as long as it's a space people care about and it doesn't create resistance by saying something that can be disagreed with. All right, so that's one. Number two on the list of thing of ways that we can separate ourselves without puffery is specialization, right? I specialize in helping X kind of person. Now, who can disagree with that? Who on the receiving end of that message, reading that on your website, hearing you say that in a video, who can disagree with that? Like they don't know how many of your clients fit that exact description. They don't know how many of the you know clients that you have of that type compared to maybe other experts in your space. It's just, it's not a claim that creates resistance. It's just your statement of who your ideal client is, who you serve, and who you help. Now, you'd want to supplement that with proof to create more trust. You know, if you have no examples or testimonials of you helping that kind of person, it should raise some red flags. But I'm going to go on the assumption that if you truly do specialize in that kind of person, you're going to have that kind of social proof that you can put next to it to back up that claim of I specialize in helping this certain type of person. Great. Now, number three is designed for. This is this is where you say something like our coaching program is designed for X who want to achieve ABC. It's basically another way of saying you specialize, um, but it's it you know it just phrased a little bit differently. And this is what I've done with Microfamous. You know, who can disagree with you stating that you created a program specifically for, for a certain type of person? Again, this gets around creating resistance by making statements that a reader can't disagree with. So I position Microfamous as the only marketing system designed for introverted experts. Now, are there other marketing systems that can work for introverts? Of course. Could the microfamous system work for people that aren't introverts? Of course, but introverts and specifically introverted experts like coaches and consultants are the ones that benefit the most from it. And trying to cater to anyone outside of that group, it dilutes my message. It actually hinders my ability to reach the people who benefit the most from microfamous. I also design Microfamous for an audience that feels neglected and overlooked by other marketing experts and gurus. So if you can do that, if you can find a group of people who feel neglected and misled and overlooked and underserved and all this, and you offer something that's designed just for them, you have a much better chance of getting their attention. And that actually builds trust. That's not a statement that like if you put it in front of the right people and you're saying, hey, this was designed for you, that actually creates trust because it shows that you're very specific and you know who you work best with and who your service or your product is designed for. And it's not for everyone. So it tells them as long as you're speaking to the right person and you put that message in front of the right people, that's going to build trust, not create resistance. So I want to finish with a useful kind of exercise. How do you put this into play? Well, the first thing I would do is take a look at your LinkedIn profile or the homepage of your website, whichever is the main place where people might see you for the very first time and read it like you were seeing it for the first time and ask yourself continuously with every sentence or phrase that's on your site or on your profile, ask yourself, is there anything here 
that a reasonable person could disagree with. And if you can remove that language from your marketing, it's going to go a long way towards creating trust. And that's the first step in actually selling something to someone. We went through that whole process on the episode with Frank, one episode back from this, uh, you know, where we got, got into trust, need, offer, and hurry, that four-step selling process for professional services. So if you actually want to sell something to someone, you have to create trust. And all the attention in the world doesn't matter if you have to break their trust in the process of getting the attention. So that's where I wanna finish with today. Thanks so much for listening, hopefully it was valuable. I hope it inspires to go back and look at your own marketing, the way that you talk about yourself, the way that you label yourself and completely and totally eliminate any puffery or hype or exaggeration from your marketing because to the degree that you use hype and puffery and exaggeration, just imagine that's the exact degree and the extent to which you are creating resistance in the minds and hearts of the people that you're trying to sign up as clients. So I'll leave it there. I'd appreciate it. Uh, if you share the show with anyone that you think would benefit from this, if you enjoyed it, go leave a, a five-star review on iTunes. That's super, super helpful. It, again, it basically helps exactly what I was talking about. It's a third party indication of credibility. So when someone goes and looks at the podcast and they see you know, a hundred five-star reviews or whatever, that gives a certain level of credibility to the show. It's a, it's a way of basically saying other people have enjoyed this and say it's good and worth the investment of time. So if you feel like it's worth your investment of time, go leave that review because it helps put that show in front of more people and it helps overcome that initial resistance to something new that we all experience. So thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on the next episode.